So glad to see you here today. And we just want to reiterate what Barry said. Just thanks for coming. Thanks for taking time out of your day. If you're visiting with us today, God bless you. Thanks for being here. We hope you feel welcome here and loved. And a couple things before I start. Um, just appreciate Ivan being here and the Gideons, just the ministries that are going out. Lipinski's sharing. Uh, Ed, Ed, thanks for sharing that. And um, the Eight Days of Hope, you know, you heard uh, the guy on the video, he said uh, the lady was boo-hooing. That means crying. So uh, uh, if you guys were wondering that, uh, I just heard him say, that guy's from Mississippi. We were helping that lady and she was boo-hooing. So um, I can translate all your southern... Uh, slang if you need me to do that. Um, one last thing is uh, Barry mentioned baptisms, and uh, I encourage you, if you've never been water baptized before, um, the opportunity next week, I encourage you to take advantage of that. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about it next week, but uh, you know, water baptism is, is a command from the Lord Jesus for us to, to, to do it, and, and we ask, well, what, it's one of the sacraments of the church, and why do we do it? Why do we do it here differently than other people do it? We, we try to follow just what the Word of God says. Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized. And Jesus was even baptized by John, and he said, you know, I, he wanted to, you know, set the pace and set the example for what we were supposed to do, and it's basically a public identification saying, I'm no longer my own, that I am, I belong to Jesus. I am, you know, being baptized. I am identifying with the death of Jesus as I come up out of the water. I'm a new creation in Christ, just identifying with the new work of the Holy Spirit in me and the, and the work of Jesus in me. And so if you've never done that and you want to co go public with your faith, it is like, it's, the, it's a command from Scripture, and it's kind of the first step to say, um, it's my living testimony of saying, I belong to Jesus, and I want to do that. So if you've never done that, secondly, if maybe you did it as a child, and maybe you, your parents kind of did it for you, or you made you do it, and you really didn't have any say-so, and you would like to have a say so and you say I want to do it on my own my own heart in my own way um, you know again Acts 238 saying repent and be baptized that's why we don't baptize infants here is that we believe that uh, a person has to come to an understanding of what it means to repent turn from their sins and follow Christ on their own where they make that decision we believe that kids are innocent before the Lord and if, uh, if a baby was to die we believe that Jesus takes them into his arms and they are in heaven forever. Um, and, and so we believe that, that children are innocent before the Lord. Um, and I'm not trying to say if, if you were infant baptized that, uh, you know, that that was not meaningful in some way. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying the way we do it, we follow scripture. Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized. And so maybe you were baptized as a child and you think, well, you know, I want to be baptized because I, I want to on my own, not my parents' decision, but I want to make my decision to follow Christ. If you'd like to do that again next week, take advantage of that. The, the water will be warm if that is any kind of uh, help for you. Um, so if you'd like to be a part of that, I'd love for you to be a part of that. So you can just let me know. Give me a call or talk to me after service today. All right, let's pray. We're going to be going back into Judges. We're going to be finishing up today, hopefully. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Lord, we thank you that the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, that you speak life through your word. Lord, that when we see people like Gideon and we see the people of scriptures, God, we see a lot of ourselves there. And we thank you, God, that you have 
allowed these people's stories to be told so that, Lord, we can glean and learn from you and learn from your heart, Lord, of, of, of sometimes what to do and sometimes what not to do. And God, the word is filled with average, ordinary, common people, Lord God, that uh, some followed you, some didn't, some started well, some finished well. And, and, and Lord, we just, we want to follow your heart and we want to glean from you. We want to be uh, just changed and transformed by the, by, by the renewing of our minds in the word of God, by the power of your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come illuminate the word, bring it to life today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Again, I'm hoping to get finished with Gideon today. Has this been good? Hopefully you liked it. Uh, if you've been here, um, I love this story. Um, it's the book of Judges. The book of Judges is, uh, again, I'm just going to give you a little recap, and then we'll get into uh, where we're going today to finish up um, Gideon. We've been in a series called Above and Beyond, Living Life Above and Beyond, that as believers, uh, I, I don't want to just live a life that just survives and trudges through, but I want to thrive and I want to walk in everything that God has for me, has for my family, has for this church, has for you. And uh, I want us to go above and beyond in our faith and our walk with Jesus. And uh, throughout this time, I've you know, talked about different things of, of how to live a, a life above and beyond surrender and faith. And I've, uh, I've been in this uh, particular passage over the last couple of weeks of courage and obedience. The book of Judges, somewhat like the book of Kings, the book of Judges was a time before Kings and uh, the, uh, the cycle was that God's people would go into disobedience, out from underneath God's authority, living life their own way. We talked about that passage that's the last verse in the book of Judges, which is kind of a tragic way to end a book, and it says the people did what was right in their own eyes. And that was kind of the, the summary of the book. The people would do it right in their own eyes. I'm in control. I'm calling the shots. I'm flying the plane. God, I don't want you. We don't want you. We're going to worship other gods. And then they would step out from underneath God's covering. They would go into captivity as a natural consequence of their sin. And uh, a foreign land would oppress them and uh, beat them down. And then the people, after a time of being beaten down, would finally call out to God, repent, and say, we're sorry. God would appoint a judge to, that would come in, rescue them, do great exploits. Israel would have a time of peace. The judge would die and then they would go back into the cycle of saying, God, we'll, we'll take it from here. We're not going to surrender. We're going to do it. Our, and they would do right was, what is right in their own eyes. And we see this over and over. The book of Judges, Gideon's story is the, the longest story of, of any judge in the book. And, I, and, I, and, and I've, in the idea of courage and obedience, we see so much out of this book. And to give you a little, again, a little recap on this particular story, the children of Israel have been in captivity for seven years, oppressed by uh, the Midianites, a massive, massive army of the time. They were very power, a very powerful people. And they are oppressing the Israelites for seven years. The Israelites are in fear. Uh, they were known to steal their crops, kill their livestock, uh, just kind of whatever they wanted to do with the Israelites, they could do. And so the angel of the Lord, the people begin to cry out. The angel of the Lord goes to Gideon, and he finds him in a basement, basically, threshing wheat, which they would normally thresh wheat on top of a house so the, you know, the wind would blow away the chaff and they would keep the grain. He's down in the basement in a wine cellar threshing the wheat. The angel of the Lord comes to him in a place of fear. And you can see this, Judges 6, 7, and 8 is the story. Um, and the, the, the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, "'The Lord is with you, mighty warrior.'" And, judge, and, 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 and Gideon says this, 
if he's with us, I mean, he doesn't say yippee or yay, thank you for telling me that. He just said, if he's with us, then why all this oppression? Why is all of this happening to us if the Lord is with us? Well, the angel of the Lord doesn't even give that response because before that, a prophet had come to town already and told them why they were in oppression and said, you know, you have been disobedient. You have been living life your own way. You have been unsurrendered and, and, and hard-hearted towards the Lord. That is why you are in captivity. So the angel of the Lord doesn't give him a response to this. He just says, go in the power and the strength that I've given you and rescue the people. So Gideon goes from discouragement, you know, where's the Lord, to then the angel not even answering him and says, go in the strength I've given you. Then he starts making excuses and saying, you know, well, my clan's the lowest clan, um, you know, the tribe, the clan, and then my family, and I'm basically, I'm the runt of my family, and uh, so there's absolutely no way that I could be the right guy. And uh, again, the angel of the Lord calls him out and says, I've called you and I've appointed you to go. And so then Gideon goes and we see him grabbing the, uh, the army of 32,000 Israelites to try to go up against an army of 135,000. Now you've got to understand the 32,000 Israelites have been oppressed for seven years, not eating well, they're very frail, they're very weak. But God says, you know what, Gideon, there's too many. There's way too many men here for you, to, uh, for you to go out to battle because if you guys were to win, you would think it was your own strength. And I want to let you know that it is me and me alone that is going to give you the victory. And so he says the first thing to do is take that 32,000 and whoever's afraid, they can go home. 22,000 immediately check out. Gone. And then God looks at the 10,000 versus the 135,000 and he says to Gideon, there's still too many. And this story is kind of almost sounding more and more crazy by the minute. And so then God says this little water drinking test we talked about last week, and this is more for people that weren't here, but I just want to recap this, is, is God says, I want you to look for guys that are, they kneel down at the river and they cup the water in their hand and they drink it and they're watchful. And so he says, I want you to grab those guys. Those are the guys that you're going to use to win this battle. So 9,700 stick their head in the river, and he says, nope, get rid of them. And I think Gideon said, at least give me the 9,700. But God, I think, is making a statement in all of this, and I'm going to go through the, uh, the life lessons of going above and beyond courage and obedience, and I'm going to kind of recap here, um, and we're going to get into the text today. But lesson number one is live under God's authority. That is why the children of Israel were in captivity. Life lesson number one to go above and beyond in your faith and your walk with Jesus is live under God's authority. Number two is listen to God and obey his word. He told Gideon, go in the strength that I've given you. Obey my word. Just be obedient. You may not even see the finished result. You may not even see how it's going to all work out. Have you ever been there before? But God was trying to say, I want you to be obedient. Sometimes God will speak something to our hearts specifically. And he said, you may not even have the finish line. You may not even see the big picture. But I want you to go because I just want you to be obedient to me because I'm with you. And sometimes our walk uh, with Jesus, and that's that place of faith, is just raw obedience. God, I don't see it. And we are all creatures of comfort. Don't we like to have the big picture? Wouldn't we like to see the hurdles? Could you, God, could you at least tell me when the hurdles are going to be? That would be really great if you could map out and I could have... I want you to go and obey what I'm telling you to do. 
Lesson number three is start seeing yourself how God sees you. Gideon made all, the, all these excuses of why he couldn't do it. I'm, I'm the least, my clan's the least. I, and we have to get rid of those, uh, those excuses, but start seeing yourself how God sees you in Christ Jesus. Because we can do all things through Christ. Yes, we cannot do anything on our own strength, but we can do all things through Christ. Lesson number four was this, we have to fight through discouragement. Remember what Gideon told God, if you're really with us, then why this? Have you ever had those scenarios in your life? If God's good, then why is this happening? If God is sovereign, then why is this happening? Sometimes we have to battle through discouragement because the enemy will come at us through discouragement and give you every reason to quit, to stop, to give up on God, and you have to push through the discouragement. And keep your eyes fixed on him. Lesson five is this. Courageously obey what God is telling you to do. It's more than just having the head knowledge of knowing what you're supposed to do. Because a lot of us know what we're supposed to do, but we don't do it. I could tell you about five life stories of my own right there, but I don't have time. But what is God telling you to do? You know, he had spoken to Gideon, all right, get up and go. Now Gideon had to actually, you know, he said, yeah, my spirit's going to be with you and my Holy Spirit's going to walk with you, but guess what? My Holy Spirit's not going to pick you up and throw you into it. You got to get up and you got to go. You got to do it. Courageously obey. Lesson number six was this, stop making excuses of why you can or won't do something for God and simply make yourself available. God's not looking for our abilities. He's not looking for our strength. None of that impresses him. What impresses him is our hearts. You want to impress God, it begins in our heart. That's why God doesn't do things the way we do. He looked at David and he told Samuel, the man looks at the outward, God looks at the heart. He always looks at the heart. And so if we want to impress God, we humble ourselves before him because a broken and a contrite heart he will not despise. Humility and walking before him. But don't make excuses of why you can or, or won't do something for God. Then last week we talked about you know, the odds, the 135,000 versus the 32, and God whittles it down to an army of 300. And lesson number seven was this, God likes it when the odds are against you and me. Hallelujah. You know why he likes it? Is because he wants us to need him. We were created for a relationship with him. He wants us to need him. The, the scriptures are filled with one person after the next, story after story of the odds being stacked against the people of God. It's some of our favorite stories growing up. It's some of our favorite childhood stories. David and Goliath, um, you know, Moses where, you know, he was, I can't speak well and, and you're choosing me to go lead the people out of Israel. Yes, I've chosen you to do this. God likes it when the odds are against his people because he wants to show up. He wants to do something great. He wants to do something that only he can do and that we won't manufacture. Then as God was whittling down the army, you know, that first group, he said, those who are, that those who are living or trembling with fear can go home. 22,000 went home. Lesson number eight was this, living dictated by fear will make us ineffective. There's a difference between being afraid and being dictated by fear. We all have fears. We all deal with fear. And, and faith and trust and obedience and courage is not the absence of fear. All of a sudden, I'm not afraid anymore. It's responding in spite of the fear and moving forward because we trust God. 
You know, I believe that David had a little bit of fear when Goliath was standing out in that valley that day. You know, I believe that there was a little bit in him that had a little bit of a fear, you know, a little bit of uh, a fear, but he, he kept his eyes on the, the, the bigness of God. And so he wasn't dictated by the fear, and that's the difference between being afraid and being dictated or controlled by your fear. Are you controlled by your fear? Does your fear dictate you on a daily basis? That's what will make us ineffective. And then lastly was uh, God saying, I want to choose the 300 that are scooping water out of their hand and they are watchful. And that was lesson number nine is, is to go above and beyond is keep a close watch on how you live. That's what Paul told Timothy. He said, watch over your life and your doctrine or your life and your teaching. Notice that life is first, then your teaching. If you want to make an impact with your teaching, live the life first. Keep a close watch on how you live. First Peter 5 says, be sober and vigilant, self-controlled and alert for your enemy. The devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to devour us. And so we need to be alert. We need to be vigilant. We need to be sober, not fearful, but watchful. And so that's where we uh, left the story last week. So God has whittled down the army to 300. And I'm going to read a part, a part of the text that I read last week. And, uh, and then we're going to go from there and, and, and wind this, uh, this story down and, and uh, see what God is speaking to us. Judges chapter 7, verse 9. Right before that, it was the Midianite camp that uh, was in the valley just below Gideon. Again, there are 135,000 trained warriors down there with all their supplies, their, their weapons, Verse 9, that night the Lord said, get up, go down into the Midianite camp, for I've given you victory over them. Listen to what he says in verse 10, but if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged, then you will be eager to attack. Notice he says, if you're still afraid. So he's not saying you shouldn't be afraid. He's saying, if you're still dealing with some fear, I want you to, to go and listen, and uh, Gideon had to respond in spite of the fear, and I love this story. We talked about this a little bit last week, but it's one of the funniest things in Scripture. So Gideon took Pura. So God says, you know, if you're still afraid, go down to the Midianite camp, listen to what they're saying, and you'll be greatly encouraged. Gideon took Pura and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. The armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like swarm of locusts. In the Hebrew, that means a lot of people. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. The man said, I had this dream, and in my dream, a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat. His companion answered, and he had the interpretation of the dream. Your dream can mean only one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite, victory over the Midian and all of its allies. Isn't that funny to you? I mean, that is hilarious. These two guys are talking. I had a dream, bread knocked over a tent. That can only mean one thing. <laughs> of course it can. You know. God is giving Gideon victory. So when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. He's like, yee-haw. 
Because he's like, that didn't make any sense, but I'm glad that, that, that they're talking about that. That's really cool. Then he returned to the Israelite camp and he shouted, get up for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. He divided the 300 men into the three groups and gave each man, listen to this, not a weapon, not a sword, not a bow and arrow, not a machine gun or a bazooka. He divided the 300 men into groups and gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. And these guys are probably thinking, what in the world are we going to do with this? Then he said to them, keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. And they're like, what, throw trumpets at guys or something? Try to hit them in the head? I don't know. Um, as, soon as, I, as, as soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horns, blow your horns too, all around the entire camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. It was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the 100 men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Suddenly, they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. Then all the three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands, and they all shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled to places as far away as Bathsheba, near Zerah, and the border of Abel-Mahola near Tabith. So the Midianite army went into great chaos and began to kill each other. I love this story. It's not the absence of fear that led these guys. It is, it is responding in the face of fear. I, I'm sure these guys did have fear. Gideon had fear. And so Gideon goes down, he hears this dream and interpretation, which is hilarious, and then he comes back up and he says, all right, here's the game plan. I'm giving none of you weapons. Of course, I imagine that at some level, there was just probably great faith, said there's 300 versus 135,000. I don't even know what a sword would do anyway. So let's just see what happens. Imagine you are one of the 300. And you get this instruction from Gideon, the leader, and basically it's this massive desert floor with all the Midianites, and they were up on these ridges just around the camp. Can you imagine being one of the 300? The ratio, if you're a mathematician, you like this kind of thing, it's 450 to 1. So if you're one of the 300 and you go up there and, you go, and you're thinking this, if this doesn't work, I'm going to have 450 guys on me just like this. We're in trouble if this doesn't work. God has to show up. This is, this is completely on him. This is not even on us anymore. And if this doesn't work, I'm, I'm a goner. So they surround and they obey the orders given them. They blow these tr trumpets or shofars. It wasn't like, you know, these kind of, you know, you know, they weren't playing jazz or anything. They were blowing these shofars and ram's horns, and then they took their, these torch pots and they broke them for, for, the, for the Lord and for Gideon, and they shouted this. And here's the life lesson. If we fight God's way, and not our way, we win. If we fight our way instead of God's way, or if we fight God's way instead of our way, we win. See, because from an observational perspective, from, a, from a, just a standpoint of military strategy, you would just wipe this off the board and say, do not ever follow this, these directions. 
This is insanity. This is kind of like Jericho. You know, God gets all the people and says, I don't want you to fight, I just want you to march around in silence. And then on the last day, I want you to yell a lot. I mean, that's what he said. Be quiet once, you know, for seven days, one lap, go to the camp. Second day, a lap, go to the camp. Third day, a lap. And, and you're thinking at some point, oh, what are we doing here? And you can see the people of Jericho sitting on the wall just laughing, just going, what are these people thinking? That they're going to march our wall down? And God's going, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. I love the kids, man. They love these stories. God, give us childlike faith. So on the, you know, the seventh day, it's seven laps. And then yell and scream and blow ram's horns. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, God crushes the city and they take it over. But from an observational point of view, this is insanity. And God is wanting them to be courageously obedient and fight his way. His way of fighting is obedience. Because they had no weapons in their hands. And God was saying, I don't want you to fight in the flesh, but by the power of my spirit. So how do we fight God's way? 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says this, we are human. But we don't wage war as humans do. The weapons of our warfare, in another translation, are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. This says that we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. And so Paul is saying the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're not human. We have to stop fighting from a human level. And that is our tendency to think that our fight is against people. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So stop fighting in the flesh. And he even goes on, Paul, I believe, to give us this this armor that we've, we've talked about, and we can do a whole series on the armor, but the, he's giving us ways to fight, how to fight in the Spirit, how to fight God's way. What are our weapons? Truth. You want to fight the enemy, live in truth. Jesus said, I am the truth, and if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. How do you fight? You fight in righteousness. Is it by our righteousness? No, we're told that our righteousness is like filthy rags. That it's the righteousness of Christ is that helps me to be righteous. The shoes with the gospel of peace, to walk in peace, that is another one of our weapons, is to walk in peace. The helmet of salvation is to be sure that we know we belong to Christ and the surety of our salvation, that we know Him and that He has saved us from our sins. The shield of faith, that is another weapon, is to walk in faith. And we've been talking about faith and this ultimate trust. And then the offensive weapon, he said, you want to know how to fight the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Know the Word. Memorize the Word. Study the Word. Have the Word in your heart. The Word is called a sword. That sounds offensive to me. And if we know the Word... We can, we can walk in God's weapons. Other weapons, worship. Notice that one of the things that they were told to do was to blow these ram's horns. Well, there's a lot of studies out there, but there was, there was different blasts from these ram's horns that they, would, that they would give out signals and calls to the people. Two of them, I think, were 
pertinent to this story because they were supposed to blow these ram's horns. One, one, one signal was a call to worship. And they would, blow the, they would blow these ram's horns to worship God as to when people would hear it, they would go into a time of fixing their eyes on God to be reminded this is a call to worship God. And they would hear the sound and they would begin to just cry out to God. I think that that is, is so relevant for this story is when they were blowing these trumpets, it was a reminder to keep their eyes on God because again, 450 to 1, they needed God. And God, we are going to worship you no matter what. We're, not, we're going to worship you in spite of our circumstances. We're going to worship you even though the odds are against us. We're going to worship you even if we don't see the finish line. We don't see any way out of this mess. We are going to worship you. Another signal that they would give was a call to war. And I believe that that is definitely significant to this, is to say, we're going to worship and we're going to war. In fact, our warfare is going to be our worship. You need to get that in. We, we all need to get that in our spirits. One of our weapons is worship. That is why the enemy battles the area of worship in so many churches. Worship becomes our warfare. Because see, worship has nothing to do with any musical instrument or any song. That is kind of be a, it can be a cry out to God and, and a part of how we do worship God, but it, it itself is not worship. You will worship God more when you wake up tomorrow, Monday morning, and you go about your day and you keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus and you live your life before Him, that is more of a test of worship than coming in here and singing any song. Because worship is about our lives. And our, our worship becomes our warfare. So the, I bet you, I, I just can imagine that one of the, when they were blowing these trumpets, it was probably a call to worship and to warfare is to say, God, we really need you because we don't even have any swords in our hands. But when they were obedient and they began to sound the call and they shattered these pots, the enemy began to turn on each other and be confused and chaotic. Worship becomes our warfare that sends the enemy into confusion. Grab hold of that today if you get nothing else. One of the things that I pray over my family every day is that the plans, the strategies, you probably heard me pray this, but the plans, the strategies, and the schemes of the enemy would fall back on his own kingdom and his own head. And a part of that happening, a part of the enemy being confused is my worship to God. Jesus even said, I'm looking for those who will worship me in spirit and in truth. True worship is the opposite of idolatry. Obedience is another weapon. I will do what God requires of me to do no matter what. Obedience is greater than sacrifice. Faith is another weapon. Prayer is another weapon. Praying in the Spirit is another weapon that we can have. These are weapons that are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. Because if we try to wage war in the flesh, we're in trouble. When we fight God's way and not our way, we win. And it sends the enemy into confusion. When we choose hope instead of despair, joy instead of sorrow, peace instead of depression, 
faith instead of fear, speaking words of life instead of death. This will be a part of our worship that sends the enemy into confusion. I wish the story ended there. I'm going to close down with this. But there's kind of a sad and tragic end to the story. You know, as a, as a person with a very active imagination, I mean, I've, 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 I just still think this would be a cool movie to see, just the 300 doing this. And I hope we get to see that in heaven. And if you're like me, you know, you read through the Bible, and there's sometimes where you come to these tragic ends, and you wish it was different this time. You ever have a favorite movie or a favorite book or something, and, you, and it's got that tragic ending, and you just go, I wish it ended differently. That's why I love those DVDs that give you an alternative ending. I would choose that every time if it's a better ending. I like the romantic ending to stuff. I like it to be good. Unfortunately, this story doesn't end good. If you'll turn to Judges chapter 8, and this is where we'll end. Why is this in the Bible? Obviously, it is a story of courage and faith and obedience, but it's also a warning to us. It is a warning to us to walk in the fear of the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 22. And so, you know, they've done all these exploits. Gideon has risen kind of to the top in um, verse 22 of chapter 8. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you, which is a great answer. You're like, live that out, Gideon. However, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the plunder that you collected from the fallen enemies. And so, you know, when the enemies were dispersed, they collected all of these treasures. And he said, give me, you know, earrings. Gladly, verse 25, gladly they replied, they spread out a cloak and each one threw in a gold earring that, that he had gathered from the plunder. The weight of the gold earrings was about 43 pounds, not including, including the royal ornaments and pendants, the purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian or the chains around the necks of their camels. Gideon made this, he made a sec, sacred ephod from the gold and put it, on, put it in the, the town of Ophrah his hometown, but soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it. And then here's the bad, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. Man, I wish it ended differently. But like the cycle that was before him, the cycle that would come after, in a lot of cases, was it didn't, he didn't finish well. And you know, you would think that after all the miraculous interventions that God had given them, that there would be no way that he could not finish well. Gideon, why in the world would you go into idolatry? You saw God fight for you. But it's the same story as the children of Israel going through the Red Sea and God parting the Red Sea and them getting on the other side and they set up this calf and begin to say, this is God who saved us. They begin to worship this idol. And you would think after seeing God's power, God's miracles over and over and over, you would think that there would be no way they could be detoured from that. And yet their hearts, when tested, 
gave way to idolatry. So he gathers up this gold, he makes this golden ephod. An ephod was a garment usually worn by priests, not all the time, but it was a sacred ephod that he made. You know, in and of itself, you know, as if they made it and it's like, oh, let's make it a memorial or something. That in, in and of itself is not a bad thing. It, but the, here's the problem. It says that Israel began to prostitute themselves with it. And that's kind of like really, really strong kind of language there. It's graphic. And it says this, it became a, a snare to Gideon and his family. Idolatry. What is idolatry? Here's the definition excessive attachment or devotion to something or someone. I want you to listen to this because I want you to, to grab hold of what God is trying to tell us in the, in, in the end of this story. Idolatry is excessive attachment or devotion to some, someone or, or something. It's opposite of worship to God. It's giving God worth to something other than God. We hold something as precious and valuable to the point of equality to God. You know, it's not wrong to be attached to something. You know, we have, you know, our marriages or real relationships. We love our children and all of those kind of things. But, and, and devotion to them is, is not bad. But it's when we put things or someone as sacred, or again, that God worth attachment, excessive attachment or devotion or something, it has become idolatry in our lives. So the graphic language, it says they prostituted themselves. What is God trying to say? And if you look at the other prophets, God uses some other strong language in the prophets as well about basically when you worship idols, you have given your love and affection to something other than me. God is saying, you're cheating on me. That's what idolatry is, is you're cheating on me. You're putting your devotion, you're putting a high value, you're putting a God worth on something or someone over me. You are going to a different love. Because even God, using the language of prostituting ourselves, reveals his heart that he is a God of relationship. He's not a taskmaster. He is a God who deeply, deeply loves us and wants our love in return. But when we put that God worth on something, an object or someone, that's when it becomes idolatry. Back in those days, they had, the idols were statues and things set up as objects of worship. Uh, you know, the calf uh, that we just talked about. And, you know, here's Aaron and, and they built this calf. And it's amazing because Moses comes down the mountain. He says, what are you guys doing? And Aaron says this. He just completely lies to him. He said, we threw this gold in the fire and out came this calf. He says that. And as Moses is meeting with God, he comes down and he hears them chanting and worshiping, and they're saying, behold, this is the God that has saved you out of Egypt. And they have seen his miraculous power over and over. It's like, why in the world would you do that? It's because this idolatry boils down to we're in control. We can control the calf. We can take the calf around. We can do whatever we want with the calf that we want to. We can take that linen ephod, and we can take this God, and we can control it. See, God will not be controlled. God is in control. And so they had these objects of worship. Some of them were poles and different things. And you had different kings like Josiah that would come in and say, what is this? And he would tear them all down and burn them. So we have given our love to something other than God. 
But make no mistake that just because they had those kind of idols doesn't mean that we, we don't have idols today, because we do, and we have to search our hearts, and we need to repent. If God is putting his hand on something, and he, and he says, look, this is something that you have put a God worth value on, you need to look at this, and you need to, you, you have an excessive devotion to that. And he'll put his hand on it because he wants our freedom and he wants our love. And we must repent and turn from those things and turn to him. What are some idols of today? What are we excessively attached or devoted to? What do we put the God worth on? It can be a relationship. Relationships are wonderful and God gives us those. But when they become obsessive, and I have to, and the only way I can be happy is to have this person, or I'm looking for my spouse or somebody else to fill a void that's within my heart, and then we get frustrated with them because, you know why? We're, we're trying to make them God in our lives, and if you're there, I'm telling you, you've made that person or a relationship an idol, and you have to get things right with him. You have to get things right with Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to fill that place in my heart so that I can properly love this person and not hold them. Because nobody will ever fill that place. Nobody will ever satisfy you like God. And so it can become a relationship, either one that you're in or one that you desire. If I could only have that, that would make me happy. When you start thinking that way and it's anything other than God, you have slipped into idolatry. It can be a job. If I only had that job, if I only had, it can be money. Ephesians 5 talks about idolatry, greed being idolatry. It can be other things that we obsess on, that we feel like is going to be our comfort. It's that, that thing is going to make me, give me peace. That person's going to give me peace and give me fulfillment and give me contentment. It might be something that controls us, our time and our energy. It can sometimes be a place where we find our rest. And I'm guilty of that one. I mean, sometimes when you just had a long day, isn't it fun to just veg out in front of the TV? Some of you guys maybe don't deal with that. We recently turned our cable off. That was painful for me. Because, you know, it's just, I, I, you know, and, and I'm not even watching anything bad as news, sports, and some ladies would say that, you know, that's kind of bad, but uh, um, but just, just kind of watching some stuff, just to kind of give my mind a break, and not that that's a bad thing, I'm not talking about that being a bad thing, but when it becomes over-obsessive, and that is the only place I find rest, and I run to that every single time I need rest, instead of running to God, it becomes an idol. And we can, we, all of us have that propensity to slip into something. And you just got to be careful. Please do not go home and, and you know, sledgehammer your TVs, you know, uh, in the name of Jesus. Unless God tells you to, then, then do it. But it's just where we find, you know, and, and I was finding too much rest there, if that makes sense. So I was able to do the man thing. Women have no idea what I'm talking about. Men will completely understand. We turn the off switch on the brain. Guys have an ability to do that. Beep, and it's gone. I mean, we're just, ladies can think about 800 things all at once. I don't know how you guys do it. But where we find rest, it's the value that we put them as filling the void. We have idols in the church. And we have to be cautious about this. We can make idols um, our experiences. 
we have an encounter, an experience with the Lord, and then all of a sudden is everyone has to have this. And you're not really, you're not really even a Christian unless you've had the experience that I have had. And God can meet with us and he can touch us in a, in a, in a certain way. And maybe, you know, you met God and he touched you emotionally and you just wept in tears and you just went to your knees and you cried out to God. And then what you do is you go around and begin to tell people, okay, here's how it done. All right, get on your knees. Now cry. Cry. You, you, need, to ha- you need to have this happen, how it happened to me. And, and it's not going to happen to them like it happens to you. Sometimes it might but we have to trust God with people, and sometimes we can make our experiences an idol. In Matthew chapter 17, it's a great story of Jesus taking Peter, James, and, and John up to the Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, and right before them, the appearance of Jesus changed, and he became white, and this cloud came. It was a powerful moment. I mean, the absolute manifest presence of God, Jesus' appearance changes, Moses and Elijah show up, this is, I mean, this is big deal stuff. And the, and the three disciples almost like fall over like dead men, like this is wild. And I love the, the New Living Translation says this, that Peter blurted out. He was known for that. And he says, Jesus, it is good for us to be here. And here's what he says. Should we build three shrines? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah? And here's the voice from heaven. Jesus doesn't even quantify that with an answer. You know what, Peter? No. And they hear the voice from heaven say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Because you know what Peter was going to do with those shrines. He was going to take monthly tours to go see the shrines and sell t-shirts. This is where it all happened right here. If you give me an offering of 50 bucks, I'll let you touch the shrine. Sounds tragic, but it's true. And Jesus just said, and the voice of the Father says, this is what I want you to do. Listen to my son. So we can make our experiences idols. We can make our gifts idols, spiritual gifts. We can make those idols. We can make our ministry an idol where we put the most value and worth on what we're doing or what we've done. or Because, you know, 1 Corinthians 12, we do have spiritual gifts, but here's what it says about spiritual gifts. God gives them as He wills. And so it's, when, when you operate in a spiritual gift, that is not a, a, a badge to say, look how awesome and impressive I am. It should be to say, dear God in heaven, look at Jesus. He is awesome. It's not about me. It's about Him. We can make our methods idols. You know, we all have our time frame of like the things that we like. Well, I remember the revival of 73. Well, I remember the revival of 48. Well, I remember the revival of 1903. I remember the revival in the New Testament. And which of those is the... And we can put parameters around the methods of, well, what songs, and what, what songs were they doing then? Well, what songs were they doing then? Well, what songs were they doing then? It, worship is not about what we do up here. Worship is about our hearts. I can only worship God when my favorite music is playing. If that is your heart, then you, you, you have to repent for idolatry because God's worthy of my heart no matter what kind of music is playing. Look at the story of Paul and Silas. They're in jail. And they begin to worship God, and the, the, it says the jail shook, and their chains fell off. 
Well, I doubt they had a guitar. And God's up there going, man, if they'll just sing the right song, I'll send an earthquake and get them out of that joint. And then they're thinking, okay, should we sing one of the old ones or one of the new ones? What's going to be the greatest thing to get God to rattle the cage? And they weren't even thinking about an escape. They were just thinking about, we're in a horrible situation. We see no way out. We're going to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, and we're going to worship him with all my heart. And the place shook, and their chains fell off. And that's one of the biggest detriments to the church is if we can get our hearts in unity and lift him up and worship him, people's chains are going to fall off. And we're going to see people get saved. I imagine those boys didn't have guitars, didn't have any instruments at all. And they just, their hearts were pure. They were probably even off key. What songs were they singing anyway? That's an interesting one. We'd have no idea. I think on purpose. Worship is our hearts focused on God so we can make our methods idols. But ultimately, guys, is this. Our greatest idol is us. Because that's the whole story here of Gideon. That's the whole, the whole bottom line foundational thing. It goes back to where we began with this story and saying, I'll be the one in control. I'll be calling the shots. I'll say what happens or what doesn't happen. I will do what is right in my own eyes. And God, I'm not going to let God control or anything. I'm not going to be surrendered to God. I'm calling the shots. And so we become our own greatest idol. And then ultimately, how do we repent of that? Is we say and we humble ourselves and say, God, I'm going to fix my eyes on you. I'm going to surrender my heart to you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you ask me to do. And I'm going to daily walk and run after you. And when I get up in the morning, I'm going to go after you. And when I wake up the next day, I'm going to go after you. No matter my circumstances, no matter the odds that are around me, no matter what is going on in my life, I'm going to follow you with all my heart. Because life lesson number 11 is God wants you to finish well. He wants us to finish well. And Gideon could have finished well, but he didn't. And what do we learn from that is to say, God, let me fear you. Let me walk in the fear of the Lord every single day. Let me keep my eyes on you. God, help me. When, when I make something an idol, God, please remind me quickly so that I can shake that off and I can come back to you. And that's the place of salvation, too. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, or maybe you asked Jesus into your heart a long time ago and you just actively are not sharing your faith or, or you're living out your faith and it's not really real to you, this is that place of saying, you know what, God, I have become my own idol. I'm, I'm in control now. At some point in the walk with you, I took back the reins. I took back over control. And it's very easy, as we see in the, in the Bible, God's people did it all the time. They would be worshiping God, crying out to him, and somewhere in the process, they take over control again, and they push God out and say, I will be the one in control. I will, take on, I will be seated on the throne of my life, not you. And God is calling us out today in this story of saying, what are idols in your lives? What are things that you need to give over to God? What are things that you need to surrender back to Him? 
Allow him to put his hand on that. Allow him to put his finger on that because he loves you and me. Allow him to touch you. Let's pray. Jesus, today, uh, Lord, I, I know this kind of went a little bit long, and uh, Lord, I, I, I just I want to take this moment right now just to fix my heart on you, and I want us as a people to fix our hearts on you. God, we, we desperately, desperately need you as the church, as the people of God. And Lord, we understand that, God, we, we just confess we're prone to wander. We're weak. Lord, we are like sheep, as the Bible says. We're so easily distracted and uh, get our eyes on other things. God, help us. Today, I just want to pray for you um, as everybody has their eyes closed. And if the Lord was putting his hand on something today and there's a place where you'd say, you know what, I think that's become an idol. It's an excessive thing and I put a Godward thing on, on something or someone. Maybe it's a method. Maybe it's you know, a relationship or whatever. And you just say, yeah, God's speaking to me about that. Will you just raise your hand? Thank you. There's some hands up. Thanks. I'm going to pray for these right now, and, and you can put your hands down, but I just want to pray for these, and I want to pray for myself as well. And Jesus, Lord, I thank you, God, for the courage of those that raise their hands, Lord God. Nothing to hide and say, yep, that was me. Lord, forgive us for our idols. Forgive us for our idols, Lord. We cast our idols at the feet of Jesus today. Say, Lord, help our hearts. Help us, Jesus. Help us, oh God, where we have taken control where we have not surrendered to you. Lord, I pray for these that have raised their hands. I got, God, I pray for your strength, your peace, your love over them, God, that they would see it from the lens of love and not condemnation. And you guys that responded, I just want to encourage you. The enemy will come, and this may not sound encouraging at first, but it, it will be. The enemy will come with kind of, kind of shame and condemnation. See this and that. Look at it through the lens of love. God loves you. Jesus loves you today. Lord, I stand with these, and I stand with, Lord, even me. Lord, the idols that I have, I need to cast those down. God, help our hearts today. Set us free to be the people you've called us to be. And Lord, we choose to fix our eyes upon Jesus today. Lord, help us to fear the Lord. Help us to finish well. and Run the race that is set before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. Lord, in your name we pray, amen.